Have you ever wondered why your average lifespan is around 80 years? Why wouldn't it be 200 years or 300 years? What is it about how we're built that makes us live as long as we do? And why do some animals like mice live for a shorter time than us? And why do some, like the blue whale, live a lot longer than us? In this episode, which is part one of a three-part series, you'll hear from Jeffrey West, distinguished Shannon professor and former president of the Santa Fe Institute. Jeffrey will take us on a journey to answer these questions. And while we'll start out talking about mammals, we'll end up talking about how companies and cities grow. Because Jeffrey is really going to talk about the concept of scaling, which is all about how complex systems respond to changes to their size. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. We're going to talk about a huge part of complexity science, which is scaling, and we'll get into what that is in due course. You were a physicist who got into biology. What did you do when you were a physicist? My training and my career was classic theoretical physicist who was from the beginning interested in many of the fundamental questions, of course, about physics, the excitement of the sort of almost romantic image of trying to understand, quote, the basic laws of nature. But it's also technically very challenging. And after what became known as the standard model was developed beginning in early 70s and developed up through the 80s and the 90s, unifying quantum mechanics with electricity and magnetism, all these marvelous things were sort of coming together. We were still left with the big question of gravity and how do we include that into the unified theory. And that turned out to be very exciting, but extraordinarily difficult and mathematically challenging. And I was in the midst of doing that when two things happened that affected me. One was external was the demise of something called the superconducting supercollider, which was this enormous accelerator that had been proposed and to uh, dig deeper into the wonders of subatomic physics. And that was cancelled in the mid-90s. And what evolved from that was encapsulated in questions that were being thrown around, like physics was the science of the 19th and 20th century, and the science of the 21st century will be biology. Therefore, no need to do any more fundamental physics. We know all the physics we know. So, you know, that was pretty disturbing to most of us that, whose careers are wrapped up in this. And I responded personally by uh, reacting with saying, yes, it's very clear that biology is going to be a subject that will dominate the 21st century. That, I think, was clear to everybody. But then I made the following personal statement that it'll only become a real science, by the way, saying this knowing almost no biology, just the total arrogance of a physicist, that it will become a real science when it 
integrates and incorporates the kinds of not just the techniques, but the way of thinking of physics, which have been so successful. That is meaning it has to develop fundamental principles. It has to be quantitative, computational, mathematizable, and predictive. Even though I fully admit I knew no biology, and it was really quite, as I say, arrogant. But that also coincided with something else, that I was sort of in my mid-50s at that time, and I happened to come from a line of short-lived males. My father died relatively young. His father died even earlier, a younger age. Most of my uncles died at a relatively young age, young meaning anywhere from 50 to 70. And so it was I in my mid-50s, this crisis occurred in the very field that I was identified with and been passionately involved in. And growing up, I just assumed I would be dead in my early 60s. So it began to dawn on me that I had maybe five to 10 years left. And these two things came together. And to cut a very long story short, that inspired me to, first of all, rethink this statement about biology and to say, yes, if I really believe that, I should put money where my mouth is and maybe I should try my hand at biology. And what better a question than why is it that I've aged and why is it I'm going to die in five to 10 years? And most importantly, from a physicist's viewpoint, what sets the scale of my lifetime? Or to put it more generally, why is it that human beings are destined to live of the order of 100 years, not 1,000, 10,000, or a million years? Or why aren't they dead in two to three years like a mouse, even though we're made of the same stuff? So that sort of got me. And I, and I thought, well, that's an interesting question. Let me start reading the literature a little bit. And I started reading, and I discovered something that really surprised me. Let's face it, we're talking about maybe the second most important event in an organism's, and in particular in a human being's life. And yet, when you read biology textbooks, they talked about reproduction and genetics and growth and development and so on. But mortality and death and even aging weren't even mentioned. And I thought, my God, that's bizarre. So then I went to the library, and I mean, in those days, this is pre-Google, so I had to go slap myself to the library and go through the old books on mortality and gerontology and so on. And I discovered that this actually was a backwater of biology. One of the things that really inspired me was that there was no real theory in the sense of a physics kind of theory that I just described. Maybe science is a little bit in the eyes of the beholder. But from a physicist's view of what science should be, there was no such theory. And in particular, and what really got me going was that no one asked the question, why 100 years? If you have a theory, in any case, it's very clear. If you have a theory of aging and mortality, that theory better predict 100 years for a human being or two to three years for a mouse or whatever. So I thought, wow, boy, this is good. This is a problem I could think about. And the first thing I thought about was, well, if you want to understand a system that seems to be operating pretty well and gradually decays and falls apart, you better understand what's 
keeping it going in the first place and then try to figure out what the hell has gone wrong with it that it starts to decay and eventually deconstruct. And of course, that's metabolism for an organism. So can we start with a statistic or a fact, shall we say, that blows my mind? And then we'll go from there to metabolism and mammals. Mammals have on average the same number of heartbeats in their life, whether you're a human, a horse, a whale, or a shrew or a mouse. When we get back to this sort of physics, hard physics view of biology, that seems extraordinary to me. Yes. So one of the facts I came across as I started to survey the literature, that was an approximate kind of systematic behavior relating a body size, meaning the weight of an animal, with its longevity. And that was encapsulated in this extraordinary observation that, roughly speaking, the number of heartbeats in a lifetime is the same whether you're a shrew that lives one to two years and has a heart rate of over a thousand beats per minute, or whether you're a blue whale in particular that may live for 120 years and has a heart rate that is just uh, less than 10 times a minute. And that was kind of extraordinary when I came across that. But there were other kind of systematic results that intrigued me. And perhaps the thing that blew my mind about all this is that all of these were lacking explanation. And I thought, my God, this is just exactly the kind of area that I should be thinking about if I'm going to, as I said earlier, put money where my mouth is and say, let's try a physics approach to this and try to understand these. So let's just summarize that for people, because it is really mind-blowing. So if you're a mammal, you on average have the same number of heartbeats, whether you're a whale, a mouse, or a person. The only difference between them is you know, some of them live long time, like the bigger ones live longer than the small ones. This, that means that the small mammals, their hearts beats, because they have the same number of heartbeats in a lifetime as the big mammal, their hearts just beat so much faster. And the bigger animals, their hearts beat so much slower. And we're going to talk about how linear or sublinear or superlinear that is, is in a moment. But fundamentally, there's this relationship divide despite this incredible diversity in the mammal kingdom, for want of a word. There's all these other relationships, isn't there? There's not only how long we live, but how long we sleep for, how long we gestate our young for. There's a whole lot of other ones. And the key one, which I know you're really keen for you to get into, is metabolism and body size. So can you tell us about that? When I learned about this result, I learned simultaneously that there were, as you say, a slew of these kinds of things. There was lots of these kinds of relationships that were very regular and systematic and begging to be explained. And by the way, one thing we should say at the outset, they fly in the face of our perception of biology, especially in terms of ideas of evolution and natural selection. And that totally blew my mind. So I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to work on. And going back to what I said earlier in terms of aging and mortality, it's clear that understanding metabolism and what goes wrong with metabolism must be a key part of this. Worth summarizing for people, what you're saying with all these relationships, we expect all this great diversity because of evolution. 
But what you're saying is that there are these underlying relationships, which is, of course, why we're talking about this in a, from a complexity perspective, as we're trying to understand the underlying principles of a system. But there's something fundamental about a mouse's system and a whale's system and our system that gives us these laws. And what we're saying in a practical sense is, if you look at the weight of an animal, you can predict their heart rate, you can predict how long they gestate their young, how long they live for, how long they sleep for, which is incredible. You can essentially write an equation to do that. So that brings us to metabolism. What's the relationship between metabolism and the weight of an animal? Metabolism, of course, is fundamental because it's fundamental to any system. What is metabolism? It's the amount of energy needed to be supplied per second or per minute or per day to keep you alive. So roughly speaking, you can think of it as the amount of food you need to eat per day to sustain yourself and do all the various things that you have to do to uh, persist. And what is extraordinary, and this has been discovered in about 1932 by a biologist named Max Kleiber. And what he did is he simply took values of metabolic rates that had been measured on various animals, and then he did his own experimentation measurements on other animals. And then he just plotted the metabolic rate as measured versus the size of an animal as represented by its weight. And he found that there was this extraordinary, yet very simple systematic relationship between them. And our first, let me summarize it in English. <laughs> It says, if you double the size of an animal, or to put it slightly differently, if you look at an animal that's twice the size of another, and let's just keep it for mammals again, for simplicity. If you look at a mammal that's twice the size of another, what you might have expected is that it would require twice as much food to stay alive. It would need twice the metabolic rate because there's twice as many cells. But in fact, what he discovered was that you don't need twice as much. You only need very roughly 75% as much. What's crucial to understand, you can double from any value to another value. So it's whether you go from 2 grams to 4 grams, 20 grams to 40 grams, 40 kilograms to 80 kilograms. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Double anywhere. And you always have the same roughly 75% increase. That is, you save another way of talking about it is you save 25% every time you double. So there's this extraordinary economy of scale, if you like, this extraordinary efficiency and systematic efficiency that develops with increasing size. So you are much more efficient than your dog, and your dog is more efficient than your cat, and the cat is more efficient than the mice it chases, but your horse is more efficient than you in this sense in terms of the amount of energy needed to supply each cell. Two things there I want to break down. So the first one is, there is a relationship between your metabolic rate and your weight. Again, despite the diversity of the mammals we're looking at, it holds true for them all. And it holds true, as you say, from whether you're going from a horse to something bigger or a mouse to something bigger or a cat to something smaller. So we can essentially write the equation that predicts the weight of the animal if we know metabolism. So that's the first bit, which is astonishing, which shows, and we're going to get to this, that there's something in the underlying system of how mammals are 
built or grow or whatever you want to say, that we can use as the, this predictive of a relationship between their metabolism and the weight. The second point is, which is amazing, it's not linear. It's a, not a linear relationship. So you double it, but the metabolism only needs to go up by 75%. So do you want to talk about that, Jeffrey? Because that's extraordinary. I'd like to now put this into a slightly more mathematical form. First of all, pictorially. The first is looking at it in a practical sense. If you want to plot on the same graph, on the same piece of paper on your desk, the elephant and the mouse, and in between put all the various mammals, begin with a shrew even, then you go to a mouse, a cat, a dog, a sheep, a human being, giraffe, an elephant, and up to the whale, you want to plot all those, that covers a range in weight of eight orders of magnitude. A whale is about 100 million times more massive than a shrew. So you want to put that on a piece of paper. Well, you can't do it. If you do it the usual way, if you go one, two, three, four, five grams, you go one gram, two grams, a shrew weighs about two grams. So you'd start with one, two, three, four, a hundred million times, you'd be, I don't know where you are. It's not quite Brisbane to Melbourne, but it's a very big piece of paper, which is obviously not just impractical, it's stupid. So the way we plot that, scientists plot those kinds of things, and we have this problem in many areas of science, in geology, where you go from small rocks to mountains, or in astrophysics, where you go from the different size of galaxies, or we go from planets to galaxies. If you want to do that, if you want to have the sort of this big picture, we use what's called a logarithmic scale. And I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with it, but just to put everybody in the same page, so to speak, all it means is instead of plotting one, two, three, four, you plot by orders of magnitude, by factors of 10. You go one, 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, a million. And if you plot it that way, and you plot that data that what Kleiber did 90 years ago now almost, what he found was that what that gave was a straight line, which was unbelievable. Here we have the most complex and diverse system in the universe, probably, namely life, metabolism. And yet when you plot it in this scaling sense, and within using these logarithmic coordinates, you get the simplest possible curve, a straight line. We're going to put a link in the show notes to a bunch of these graphs that people can see, because it will blow your mind, if you're listening to this, to go and look at this graph and see the shrew and the human and the whale, and it's a straight line. Right, all on the straight line. That was pretty amazing. And the other amazing thing about it that Kleiber discovered, so that in fact called Kleiber's law, is that the slope of that line is very close to the number three quarters. And that's the relationship to the 75% that I said. And plotting it that way is equivalent to what I said earlier. Roughly speaking, every time you double, you save 25%. But what followed after that is things that you've already alluded to, People started measuring lots of other things and plotting them this way, namely logarithmically, all kinds of physiological quantities, like something as mundane as the length of your aorta. The aorta is the first tube that comes out of your heart. 
So the length of the aorta versus weight, plotting things like thing we've already talked about, lifespans, number of children, number of offspring. So both physiological quantities, and you plot them this way, and what is remarkable is they all look like what I just described for metabolic rate. When you plot them logarithmically, they line up very closely on a straight line. And here's the other big kicker. They all have slopes, just like metabolic rate, that are simple multiples of the number one quarter. So just to give you a couple of examples, heart rate decreases with body size. The shrew's beating at over a thousand times a minute. The whale is only beating at less than 10 times a minute. That follows, if you plot them, plot all those numbers, the slope of that line is one quarter. Actually, it's minus one quarter. The minus just a symbol for it decreasing with size. But the slope is 0.25 approximately and so on. So to boil all this down into something extremely simple, it says that in terms of the way nature scales from the smallest to the largest, it's completely dominated by this extraordinarily simple number, one quarter. The number four is actually determining basically the biosphere around us. So this begs the question, where in the hell does this number four come from? The fourth dimension is what you call it, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So first of all, why is it this way? Why do they scale so regularly? And why is it constrained by the number four? Why does it play that role? That challenge excited me enormously. So just to maybe summarize, as I think is key, you go to a diverse range of animals, mammals, that look different, seem different, behave different. And what you find is you find a bunch of mathematical relationships dominated by a quarter or three quarters that you can, if you know the weight of an animal, you can calculate how long they sleep for, how long they live, their heart rate, their metabolic rate, all of these things. And the bigger you get, the more efficient you get. You double your size, you don't need to double your metabolism. You only need to increase it by another 75%. And of course, this podcast is all about complexity and Really what scaling is, and I never understood this, you know, this moving from one size to another until I read it in your book, is it's fundamentally, isn't it, the study of how complex systems respond to changes in size. And the listeners are going to kill us, but we're going to stop it there. And in our next episode, we're going to pull apart where this power law comes from in mammals, where this one quarter, where this fourth dimension comes from. And we're also going to have to explore the way that this power law that we see that dominates mammals, dominates lots of other things like cities and companies. Jeffrey, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.